Now, Christopher, tell us, yeah. tell us about yourself, because we kind of just brought you in just because you, you came on early. Grew up Angelino kid. Um, parents migrated here, mid-60s. Um, we, South LA rental, we uh, were part of a first generation to desegregate the West Side, Venice and Fairfax is where I grew up. Um, Catholic school, South LA, St. Paul, near Crenshaw. I uh, went to Loyola High School, Mid-City, graduated 84, and then from there to Berkeley, and then from Berkeley to SC. Um, I remember I was living in my parents' house, and I bicycled, literally, when I was in my grad program for a bit, from the west side to USC, and it was um, just this really uh, weird set of experiences of um, and I'm an historian of LA and of urban space. And so I would say that the, ironically, the experiences of biking from the West Side to SC in my graduate program on my first year was more intensive than the courses that I was taking because it really sort of immersed me into noticing things that I just simply hadn't noticed despite the fact that I'd grown up in the city. So I don't think you can be a true um, uh uh, that's probably um, judgmental, pejorative, but screw it, whatever. Um, I don't think you can be an historian of a city or we know a city unless you've either as a pedestrian or been on a bicycle or even a motorcycle experience it. Otherwise, you're, you might as well just get on a Peloton or go to a video game and drop a quarter in and drive around because it's basically what you're getting. And I, I know that's right. no, critical right, right, right there. elitist or whatever the frack you want to call it. But I think... Um, Preaching to the choir. I do think that's the case. So. Weird, weirdly, we think of it as elitist, but it's it's really not. It's really the exact opposite. But somehow, uh, bikes have become this elitist thing. But like ten years ago, or maybe fifteen years ago, uh, you know, if you were riding a bicycle, you were definitely looked down upon. I guess. I mean, probably yeah. still, but there's definitely this uh, alternate kind of image that's been cast onto the bike rider where there's still you know, something it, yeah there's there's still some classes like for sure you're seen as a second class citizen if you're riding a bicycle but then or there's also this you're seen as a kid yeah something like that but there's also this like sentiment about bikes where it's it's like um it's like a symbol of gentrification i guess you know like I, I would say it is about is there's a there's a certain component of a projection that you have the choice to utilize a bicycle to get from point A to point B. And if I am and I've been placed into neighborhoods and communities that are um, distant from my work environment, distant from my children's school environment, from having kids, then my ability to use both public transportation as well as bicycle is a non-starter because in many ways it's not a choice that I can make. And so there's a, um, the proximity of primary residential space to workspace is increasingly a West Side phenomenon. It's increasingly an elite phenomenon. It's increasingly a certain segment of the um, socioeconomic ladder phenomenon. Um, it certainly is neighborhood specific increasingly. And so I think that um, 
that part of it has, I think, has emerged as a dominant narrative. I think particularly in Los Angeles, it's has emerged as a dominant narrative. It's more of a, it's a West of 405 culture, South Bay culture, um, beach culture. Um, uh, Silver Lake. Yeah. So it's that, so it's, it, it's become very neighborhood specific and class specific with a racialized component to it. And that I think is, is where the sort of reaction um, uh, grows from or resonates at for folks when, when they see or they hear people encouraging them to ride a bike. I think that's what they're listening to. Is, is that, how much is that perception? How much is that, that, I mean, like people in all neighborhoods don't bike to work? So when you, so when you look at, um, when, DOT um, does tracking patterns and particularly the bus riders union ongoing effort to try to move away from allocating public resources from rail into bus lines. When you start tracking that information by neighborhood and over years, you've got to then also track the way that neighborhoods have been formed and the relationship between socioeconomic status and neighborhood. And so you see, I think, the two ways that public transportation have increasingly lent themselves toward um, elite socioeconomic communities is clearest in the way that we have allocated our public resources for rail versus bus and where we place um, bike lanes, for example. So if you, if you dropped a, a Google map of bike lane, um, density and you cross tab that to socioeconomic and race, you would see these things play out mostly because in those neighborhoods you've got, um, it doesn't mean that these folks aren't engaged in the other neighborhood. It just means that the ability to demand an allocation of resources toward bike lanes is increasingly towards certain neighborhoods. And so I think that's where you're, so tangibly, I think it's a public policy issue. I think tangibly it's about um, the sort of long-term post-World War II ways that we've structured our cities and our neighborhoods and, um, and feeling like it's one more way that the leading edge of the environmental movement going back to uh, John Muir has this element of it in which we are still disproportionately placing the waste functions, for lack of a better term, of urban space into communities of color and working class communities. And increasingly, we still place the um, bike lanes, railway transportation, what I would call clean public transit into communities that align with socioeconomic status. And I think there's some, there's some frustration there, but I think there are moments, and the reason I like the talk that we're gonna do this evening is because I think there has to be an increasing alignment between, you've gotta start looking at this as multiracial, multi-ethnic, interdenominational coalition building that looks at policy from the perspective of these things have to go hand in hand as opposed to being treated as disparate and disconnected. Um, and, and that, you know, so we have to look at it from a meta global perspective in terms of what has been the ways that we have structured neighborhoods and then what are the ways that we can um, 
is to, to take limited public resources and really think critically about where we're reallocating those public resources. Um, and, and we're not doing that. And so if we increasingly just see uh, bike lane density increasingly connected into um, social elite neighborhoods, then the ability for that movement to then, I think, scale and leverage is going to be impacted because you've got other, I think, competing needs. And then those competing needs as we move into a truly multiracial, multicultural society are going to then be labeled as, well, that's the concerns of white elites and that's we're not following that direction anymore. As opposed to what I think that this talk tonight's about, which is no, Black mobility is intricately connected into issues of mobility. And in fact, the ability for Black folks to move easily in transportation, be it public or be it bike, has to be part of public policy agenda. But we've got to address the issues that impact the way that Black folks have been impacted by that. And we are not doing that. So that's where I think there's got to be some, some relationship and coalition building. That's my humble approach. Well, we got now, Lena, and I think Lena's spent a long time talking about. Yeah. This do we do we have Yolanda on yet? Not yet. Does no, she she's have... trying to get on. Trying to get on. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna bring Yolanda on. She's gonna begin her part of the show. How many bikes do you have, Lena? Um, I have three or four. I figured if you have one on your wall, you probably have more too. Yeah, uh, it's to create space. Uh, there are two that I keep. Uh, in my uh, in my room with me, uh, and then there are two that I keep locked up uh, in the garage outside, behind an extra gate. Wow. Um, but yeah, I have you know I I think once you've had a, a bike stolen, uh, it kind of jars you, <laughs> so you don't feel like you can do too much to protect them, you know, or you know try to keep them you know with you as opposed to you know just out there for somebody to grab so for sure yeah 100 i have a whole strategy of of uh bringing the bike if the bike doesn't All come right. with me in the store i'm i'm sitting somewhere where i can see my bike oh i don't go i don't i don't go places um generally uh if i'm riding my bike if a friend says hey we're like pre-covid you want to come over and i can't bring my bike inside there's not bike parking you know that's secure i'm not coming my bike has to come I no, like leave it outside in LA at night for an extended period of time. That gives them too many, like too many options to like figure out where you from. It's like, so, that's an invitation, but thank you, no. Exactly, I'm good. exactly. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Yolanda. Yes. Hi. Hi, Hi Chris. Nice to meet Hello. you here Pleasure. virtually. Yes. Thank yes. We had a little technical challenges. Uh, Bike Talk was telling me that um, this was a 2 5 meeting. I'm like, what? Oh my God. Not tonight. So thank you for getting me in. And um, yeah, I yeah. guess we'll, we'll, we'll kick this off. I know we have a lot to talk about. Uh, tonight right. and Chris has made uh, his stuff available. Christopher, do you go by Chris? Christopher, how should we? Uh, Please, Chris. Dr. Uh, yeah. Wes. Uh, Please don't. Yes. 
Chris. Okay. Thank you. Yes. You know how we do it in LA. We, we cut names short and come up with names and nicknames. So um, just thank you so much. And we're going to, we're going to go through this a, a little bit uh, more. Just, I know we have a, a hopefully a, a good group of listeners tonight. Uh, Chris, we have a lot of folks that are interested in hearing, you know, about um, the Green Book, but also I recommended that folks check out the documentary if they could. So we'll, we'll go through those particulars um, and then we'll get into the interview. Uh, so first it's off, a, it's actually showing tonight at nine o'clock after this. So oh, it people, is. Oh it's my showing on PBS National. So if they want to bounce to this at nine o'clock, it's showing. Okay. This is like a sign, you know, this is, this is meant to be tonight that we flow right into it afterwards. Um, so basically, yeah, we're just excited that uh, Dr. Christopher West is with, uh, with us. He's a recognized historian on the Green Book, actually, and, and much more. But before we dive into the conversation, I'd just like to take a moment to lay down the foundation of our podcast, which is called We the People, Black Lives Rolling, uh, that is made possible on Bike Talk by Nick and Don. Uh, this effort actually was ignited uh, this past summer, July of 2020, when Nick actually reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in joining Bike Talk and uh, to expand upon sharing the narratives of Black lives on bikes. And I said, yes, we can try it out. And here we are seven months later, uh, growing the movement of, of this storytelling and a mobility justice work. Uh, we the People, Black Lives Rolling is a virtual conversation series that's hosted by Bike Talk. And it's a virtual conversation series pilot, really, uh, that has brought attention to not only Black Lives Bicycling, but also we are diving into the issues and healing solutions around the social, political, and economic challenges that we, the people in Los Angeles, America, and globally face at the intersection of uh, mobility justice. And our goal is to tap into the less heard narratives of their experiences and also um, look for healing solutions in terms of how we can move forward into more equity-based um, environments and communities uh, that we can have the safety that we're all seeking sustainability and build community and compassion. Uh, I'd like to in, uh, introduce Lena Williams, who is the co-host with us this month, Black History Month. She is the bicycling education or safety education manager, manager at People for Mobility Justice. Uh, Lena and I actually cross paths in, in various ways and diverse ways in the work that we do, but I too am connected with uh, People for Mobility Justice. Um, for the past three years, I've been on their advisory board. And at this time, I'm actually acting as the interim uh, chair as we uh, move forward and growing and transitioning the work that's being done at People for uh, Mobility Justice. And our guest this evening, as we mentioned earlier, is Dr. Christopher West, who is a recognized historian on the Green Book, as well as uh, he is on the faculty at Pasadena, uh, Pasadena City College, where his creative and dynamic teaching inspires students to de delve deeply into the complexities of American history and grapple with both the aspirations and contradictions of the country's founding beliefs. Dr. West received his BA in American history 
from the University of, Ber of California, Berkeley and earned his PhD in American history from USC. And we've got some USC uh, family members on this end too. So they're, I'm sure, routing, woo, as a, uh, but we love UCLA too. So welcome everyone. Thank you. Uh, this evening, we are going, our evening, our episode is going to focus on the structuring, uh, really, the way we're going to take this is the structuring of the American outdoor spaces uh, as it relates to our mobility and safety and how the Green Book worked as a safety mechanism, almost like a Black people's policy to protect and evolve our human existence. That in fact saved lives and made it possible for generations before us to expand beyond the extreme racist boundaries while in movement. Uh, both Lena and I, as I mentioned, are uh, really tapping into the mobility justice side of it when it connects with bicycling, using public transit, and quite simply, uh, you know, just the matter of moving around while black. Um, in outdoor spaces. I would just like to get into this conversation, um, but also referring to if those of you that have had the opportunity to watch the documentary, Driving While Black, Race, Space, and Mobility in America, Chris was actually in this documentary um, along with a, a lot of other really um, great folks that have shared their perspectives um, throughout America on mobility. And this um, documentary was directed by Gretchen Soren, uh, if I'm saying her name correctly, Chris, and Rick Burns. Uh, yes, and Rick Burns. And so the documentary, FYI, chronicles the advent of the uh, automobile, uh, which brought new mobility and freedom for African Americans, but it also exposed them to the discrimination and deadly violence on how that history and how that history resonates today. So I think, you know, this is such a comprehensive documentary. I really almost see the documentary as we can, we can um, break that up into 15 minute segments, which would probably carry us through the year of just talking about what they meant and what that meant for black lives um, during that time and how it really does connect today. Uh, before we start uh, into this conversation, I don't know if Nick will be able to share just a segment of um, Chris's uh, uh, narrative at the beginning of this document. And I really think that'll lead us into the conversation tonight. So if you can do that, that would be great. General Motors is a proud sponsor of Driving While Black. Okay. Uh... And I think it was uh, I think it's really, frame for really tough okay. for the majority of Americans to begin to even understand the gut-wrenching horror that is driving in a racist society. Yep, and I think that's where we are. And Chris, what were you thinking, and how was it working on this film? And you know, just pulling that all into our mobility today. Well, thank you. And um, I'm humbled to be here and, and thank you for the invitation. The, um, the, the documentary film was, I mean, actually it was shot 2017. So it's been a while since it was produced and they were doing a number of different things in terms of looking at spaces and locations in which 
African-Americans are looking at migratory patterns. And I think the, there's a few ways I would ask folks to think about considering or spinning. And there's some data points I think that are critically important. Um, we, we often don't see, perceive and experience black folks as being part of proactive migration in terms of looking for spaces in which they will be able to express their full humanity. But in fact, that's exactly what happens with the great migration so brilliantly chronicled um, in the book, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. And if you think about the year 1900 in which upwards of 90% of African-Americans are rural, agrarian and Southern, the choices that they make with the end of reconstruction in 1877 and the rise of a type of racialized violence that I think it has to be understood from the, the words of Ida B. Wells Barnett. And she talks about the lived experiences of black folks. She gives a narrative of three young men who were in the city of Memphis. They opened up a local grocery store. They went into direct competition with a grocery store owned by whites across the street for their willingness to take advantage of the capital market system and be successful at it, they were killed. And the push by Ida B. Wells Barnett was both to use her written word and her push is to say that this is the location that we can't live in and to find some other place to go to. And so the Richard by sort of the warmth of other sons is a desire by African-Americans to move out of Southern rural agrarian spaces. They move first into Southern and urban spaces, Memphis, um, and otherwise, and then from there, they're gonna move into Northern urban spaces. This is where we need to understand the basis of black mobility because there is the perception that the United States and its Northern cities offered a fundamentally different set of opportunities for African-Americans. And we've got to disabuse our colleagues of that notion because data point, it simply isn't the case. And let me just do a, a bit on that. We are in a moment in which we are, we are in a what about is a moment in which whenever African-Americans make an offer, a narrative of their lived experience, there's this counter never of what about is. And um, there's a false comparison between the tyranny that was January 6, 2021 to the resistance movement that will emerge known as Black Lives Matter which is part of a longer narrative that goes back almost 120 years in which African-Americans are going to um, forcefully, but within the boundaries of the definition of the United States Constitution and the protections offered there, simply ask a very simple question, stop killing our children. Hmm. And I need you to hear that again. The, the false comparison between the tyranny that was January 6th to the ongoing movement long going movement, 100 year movement of black folks saying something extraordinarily simple and extraordinarily direct. Please stop using the entities of the state to kill our children. Oh. And, and, and the whataboutism that tends to make these two things in relationship is an example of 
the lack of an understanding and the use of data that doesn't really begin to even frame narrative. I'll, I'll give an example. The Green Book simply is, here is a man who was a postal worker in New York. And what he recognizes that in Jim Crow America, and I think for most Americans, there is a lack of an understanding that you could not go to bury your mother because a funeral parlor and a mortician would not take your body. You couldn't go to a dentist. You couldn't go to a medical profession. You couldn't go to an insurance company. You couldn't go and buy real estate. The most basic things that Americans see as part of their constitutional right and free market capitalist system were not allowed and given to African-Americans. That said, and let's spin the narrative a little bit, it means that Victor Green and the Green Book is a quintessential example of the extraordinariness of Black folks, which is, despite these, I am going to seek and look for a business and entrepreneur opportunity to create an environment in which I will guarantee that if you utilize this particular document that I'm going to produce, that the individuals who have offered their businesses in this particular document have guaranteed that you will be able to walk and spend your dollars in a capital market system in a way that you will be provided dignity. And here that's specifically entrepreneurial spirit, yes. free market capital system, dissemination of information. He will grow that through his network, professional network of other postal workers. He will disseminate that through another network, which is Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is going to be train operators, uh -huh. which means that it is a, a system in which there is a positive feedback loop as it grows from New York and then grows into the East Coast and then grows nationally. There is always a component in every green book that is published that says, if you know of another business that offers the opportunity that we know will be a guarantee that when a black family goes into that particular space, that they will be given and treated dignity, please get it back to us and we will include this in a future publication. How much more basic and simple that is how that is connected into entrepreneurship, how yes. that is connected into professional networks. The professional networks connected to that are connected into the professional networks of historically black colleges and universities. They're connected into the black Greek life letter organizations. These are networks that serve in many ways black communities literally in the presence of white communities with no knowledge of their existence and in many ways no mm. concern about their existence right, right. despite the fact that you've got dollars that are moving through those communities and I don't mean I don't mean hundreds of dollars I don't mean thousands of dollars I mean millions of oh. dollars that are being moved to these communities as folks are migrating from the south southern rural southern urban and then eventually into northern urban communities and so the Green Book serves as that critical beginning of a transportation system. We really don't see it emerge in its most dominance until the emergence of the automobile in the early 1950s, but certainly before the war, meaning World War II, it emerges as a vehicle and a, and a, um, and a tool by which Black folks can be able to say, okay, if I'm driving from New Orleans to Chicago, where are the places I can stop and rest? Where are the places that I can stop and go here? Um, it, it's, it speaks to, um, it, it's, it speaks, I think, what Victor Green does with it, it speaks very specifically to 
a here is a business opportunity that I see available. Here is a way of offering a service to my community. Here's a way to tap into my professional network. I'm going to pull all these things together, produce literacy. I'm going to put something that is going to be in a written word. It's going to be distributed to these communities. And that distribution is going to serve as both a resource as well as a vehicle and a tool. And it does all those things. The most, um, I think the most um, compelling part of it is he wrote, I remember the first time I read it and I just oh. sat there as a graduate student and just was blown away because the words were, I don't want to produce this. And I'm waiting for the moment oh. when we don't have to produce this. But until exactly. that time comes, we will continue to lean into and produce this document because of its necessity for our communities to move through urban spaces and move through United States with dignity. Just extraordinary stuff. Because it means that I recognize the need, I recognize its utility, but despite that, despite me not wanting to produce this, meaning that I'm not doing this for capital market interests solely, I'm doing it primarily as a vehicle of service, but I recognize that it does what it needs to do, which is to provide folks in this community an opportunity, and I'm going to continue to produce it because it's necessary, because we've got to do it. Right. I mean, I'm... I'm just, you know, I'm lost for words. And it, it, it also is an evolving that we all have to do that either had family members from our past that didn't use the green book. You know, it was not something that was discussed in our families that as, as African-Americans, this is what we have to use. But I think I, I, I had to keep digging and then I'm going to let Lena definitely chime in. Um, you know, I had to keep digging even with my mom, who actually just turned 98 years old a couple of days ago, um, originally from Oklahoma. Um, mm. And my dad was originally from Louisiana. Um, they both migrated here during the second migration or in between the second mm -hmm and the great mm -hmm. migration. My dad was um, in the army. So he kind of not directly from Louisiana by way of his, his different assignments. Um, but my mom, uh, my dad's not with us any longer, but I asked my mom, mom, did you use a green book? Because we've done a lot of uh, road trips as a kid going back, mm -hmm. you know, that you guys talk about mm -hmm. that in a documentary going back and visiting our mm -hmm. family. So we drove back and we took the train um, Amtrak uh, back, but we did more driving than the train. And it was like, mm -hmm. how did you know where to go? How did you know where mm -hmm. to stop? This is in the 60s, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and she's like, we didn't use a green book. I'm like, well, somebody knew, you know, where to tell, <laughs> tell you where to stop and how to ride on the road. I do know that when we were, however, the conversation of movement um, was, uh, you know, no, we're not going to stop at this restaurant, you know, and I, I simply because of how it looked um, or what the restaurants we did stop in, which were, you know, probably ran more by white folks. Um, there was kind of this, this, the, the energy, you know, was there where we had to kind of behave, I guess. And I didn't know that it was, we had to behave like the Negroes 
are supposed to behave in these types mm -hmm. of, if we didn't want any trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah, but mm -hmm. I, I, there was no green book. So and it was kind of like, well, someone must have told you because uh, from what I'm hearing in the stories that um, have been told about what our ancestors and, and, and those before us had to experience, we had to be informed in some way. And then also the sundown, sundown towns. Um, I have a lot that's running through my mind right now, but I, I would say this, and I'm gonna let you know Lena take it from uh, there is the green book sounds like, you know, the next phase of the underground railroad, you know, to me, mm -hmm. it was a map. It was a navigation map for us to get from one point to the next point safe. But now here we are trying to work, as you mentioned, within the network you know, of America because we, we could move around. No slave catchers were after us, but um, there was the police at this point that were the ones that were either looking for us or the KKK. Um, mm -hmm. um, and so it really does, as I mentioned when I was doing the writing, kind of the write-up for how to describe this, sound like a policy you know that was when you mentioned the the in the in the, the genius base basically of creating something like this is that it was a working policy that worked for black people mm -hmm. you know uh, policies are designed are supposed mm -hmm. to be designed to protect us and mm -hmm. um as a country and it was like this was done with our people for our people to protect mm -hmm. us in movement um, Lena, what's your thoughts? Okay. <clears throat> um, <To> start. <laughs> I grew up in um, in Orangeburg, South Carolina, um, and a lot of my family grew up in South Carolina. Some of them uh, migrated up to uh, like the Washington D.C. area, um, but uh, the stories that my family shared, a lot of them shared stories of traveling uh, to see family members and stuff like that and having to use the Green Book as a means, you know, of protection, um, you know, to know where to go if they were going to make any stops. But uh, the car was always packed with all the things that were needed for, you know, the trip. You know, a lot of, you know, uh, I grew up um, traveling to D.C. with my family um, as a young person. And I remember we didn't make many stops, you know, ourselves. We stopped on the side of the road. I think it was just you know, something that became, you know, sort of your, you know, natural sort of habit, you know, um, you knew that you could be safe, you know, if you packed your own stuff, you didn't have to be denied food, you know, or anything like that. So, you know, you prepare the things that you need and, you know, you stop on the side of the road, you know, to have those meals. Um, the thing that I thought um, was really, really interesting uh, today, so I've seen the documentary a couple times uh, mm -hmm. since it's uh, aired the first time. Um, but I rewatched it today in preparation of, you know, tonight's conversation. And as I was coming home, um, I have a pet care business um, on top of the bike stuff that I do. So I was coming home after, you know, spending time with a dog, having a great time. And as soon as I hit the corner, uh, I see uh, a black guy in a car and I see two police officers. So I was like, okay. So I'm like, and I see some of my neighbors come out and, you know, I see some people bringing some cameras out. Um, so then as I'm coming up to my yard to put the bike in the yard, I see on the citizens app that the police have called for backup. So I'm like, what, mm. what is happening? 
Like, so I'm standing here, I'm witnessing this. I was able to move past you. There was nothing really serious, you know, that warranted, you know, the call in the Calvary, you know, for this right. one individual sitting. Um, so um, I, you know, a friend of mine called and said, hey, can you help me out with something? I said, I'm kind of stuck on my porch right now. I'm, you know, taping, you know, kind of recording the cops, you know, this interaction just to see, you know, to be here in case anything pops off, you know, that we need to share, you know, in this way. But like, you know, many of us, when we saw the alerts come over the citizens after like, hey, you know, like, is that necessary? Like, why are you mm-hmm. calling for backup? Like, you know, what's up? Like, no one's, you know, causing any sort of issue for you. So I thought it was really interesting that, <clears throat> that I just watched this, you know, documentary earlier in the day. Uh, and then I, you know, encounter, you know, that very sort of, you know, um, you know, visceral experience of like, you know, oh, this energy of like, okay, right, this is the world that we're still living in. Right. Uh, this is, you know, the things that we're still dealing with that we're, you know, impacted by. Um, and it's just really challenging and traumatizing for the community, you know, because for me, like immediately, like you see cops on the corner, it's like, do I want to turn to go home or do I just want to pass, you know? Like, do I even want to, you know, you know, stop? Um, so, yeah, but wow. it was all over a small traffic violation, um, you know, something about a tag, you know, not being, you know, valid or something like that. Although, as I've shared, you know, uh, before, so I had a tag stolen off of uh, my car and I had to go through this whole process with the DMV who's experiencing craziness because of COVID and they're only taking appointments, all of this stuff. So it was not easy for me to get a temporary tag. I was at the uh, grocery store one night and I was about to drive off. A police officer came like banging on my window and I was like, you know, really alarmed and like, you know, what's up? Mm -hmm. I cracked the window a little bit and he's like, oh, that tag back in your window. You know, how did, you know, people say it's so hard to get those. Like, you know, what was your experience like? Was it difficult? I said, yes, it was difficult. He said, is there anything else you can tell me? No, it it was difficult. Like, I'm not gonna offer you any other information because one, like I'm alarmed that you're coming to me at night. You know, I don't feel safe, you know? So I'm like, I don't know what else I'm supposed to say. But also, if you know this, if you know that this is difficult, you know that there are problems with the DMV currently because of COVID, why are you currently stopping this person, you know, because of this, you know, very small thing, his license was valid, they said all of this, like, you know, like, it was just, they were like, oh, well, we have to impound your car. They called out nine police officers, nine of them. Nine of them. Nine of them for what, for your car? No, or, for this oh, gentleman this that evening. was on oh, the for corner, the, okay, this evening. you know, okay. uh, yeah, this evening that was, you know, there. So like, it was just really, really like unnecessary. Like, so mm-hmm. it brings out more people in the community because now we're all really alarmed. Like what's happening? You know, do we need to be, you know, afraid for this, you know, guy? So no one wanted to leave. Like no one in the community wanted to leave him there by himself. Mm. You know, everybody wanted to stay because they're like, we don't know if it, you know, if it helps that we're here. But right. we don't want to leave you like, you know, uh, it's just it just seems too intense for something so, you know, minor, like it doesn't warrant this response. Um, but I thought, you know, also them calling for backup. So it's a black community. There are a bunch of black people standing outside. Obviously, we're a threat because we're here. You know, you're afraid for your lives or whatever. But the reality is, if you're that afraid, please pick a business profession. <laughs> like right. you cannot be afraid of people standing in their community. Like you, you can't be afraid of that. And if that scares you, then, you know, that's not the job for you. So it just, just really telling that the times haven't changed much uh, since our 
people, you know, came up with this really brilliant idea of the Green Book. Um, I think that um, I've participated um, in a couple bike tours um, where we traveled. I did one from uh, Georgia to South Carolina. Um, for our traveling sort of like resource, we was created uh, a, a Green Book what our, of sorts where we, you know, provided everybody's information, the places we could be stopping, all of the valuable information for the tour that you needed as a participant was, you know, captured in the Green Book. Um, so I think that, you know, it is something um, that has been passed down uh, from, you know, generation to generation, you know, of folks is knowing that this is a trusted uh, source. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's just really remarkable, uh, you know, to have, you know, to be able to share space and have this conversation with you, uh, given your closeness to it and how, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, of a tool it is and resource uh, it still is, you know, to this day, um, you know, for us. So thank you uh, for sharing and thank you for being here and thank you for all of your contributions. Um, I am uh, curious though, uh, in terms of the, the time, as you said before, like the documentary was uh, produced in 2017. Um, we we're a couple years away from that. Um, do you think that, you know, uh, the Green Book is still something that people should be, you know, using given the climate, you know, uh, that we're in uh, currently? Um, do you think that, you know, uh, yeah, what do you what do you think in terms of the distance, you know, in terms of where we were then and where we are now, uh, the the need for resources like the Green Book um, for our community in terms of our, in terms of our safety. If I could um, humbly say thank you for sharing your experiences of today. Um, Um, I, if, if I may, um, if you are listening to this podcast, I want you to really slow down for a second and understand that what Lena shared is a set of lived experiences from this moment of this day that are not an anomaly, that are normative, that are pervasive, that are disproportionately the way that black and brown communities experience policing. And more importantly, that the disconnect and dissonance between what she observed. I came around the corner. There was a minor traffic stop. There was a single black and white. There was one African-American man. The reason he was being stomped in the middle of a social economic crisis and a pandemic was because of a registration tag for the car. And the response by the police was to escalate it to increase the amount of black and white units that were called. At no point did Lena say anything about violence. At no point did Lena suggest anything in terms of the community speaking negatively to police officers. At no point did Lena say that the individual who was being stopped was a threat to the officers or to their lives. 
Lena then shared a story about her own lived experience in which she was a woman, and I'm not, I'm not disrespecting Jenny, I want you to just, as a woman on her own in a grocery store at night, having a police officer knock on her window and request information from her about a tag registration indicating that her car was legally registered with the state of California and attempting to engage with her in a conversation on her own in a parking lot at night at a grocery store as she is simply going about her life. Let me say again, these are not anomalies. These are not one-off. They speak to nothing about Nina as a human being. They speak directly to the disproportionate lived experience of African-Americans. Contextually, the reason that is the case is because that the other thing that occurs when Blacks move into urban Northern environments is that there is a series of containment procedures that are put into place. The police serve as a frontline vehicle for that to occur, but not the only, and in many ways, not even the most dominant. You have real estate policies in which African-Americans don't have the ability to utilize either post-GI Bill or the Federal Housing Authority or through the vehicle, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, a capital market system to purchase real estate. You have a disconnect from African-Americans being able to purchase real estate in proximity to the location where they are working. And you have the containment, for example, Yolanda, I could have told you where your people are from because Los Angeles, they probably came sometime between 47 and 60. They probably came from Louisiana, mm -hmm. Oklahoma, because disproportionately that's where Black folks came post-World War II into this West Coast region. But when they arrived, they did not arrive having full opportunities and participations to benefit from a free market capital system. They had to negotiate that in extraordinarily difficult ways. Now, if you are a non-African-American listening to this podcast, now I want you to turn around and ask yourself the question, tell me how Lena was supposed to respond in that situation when the police officer knocked on her window at that moment and asking her what would be, I'm assuming, attempt to engage, but that engagement given the police officer's role as a deputized by the state of whatever entity, municipality or city with the ability to use lethal force on African-Americans and given the moment in which that lethal force has been used disproportionately for African-Americans and particularly against women, what would you have liked her response to be? What would you have liked the African-American community's response to be this evening to a situation in which she could observe that this young man did not demonstrate violence, did com comply, which is, this, which, is, which is a dominant vehicle word that's used against African-Americans. And now when we begin to move into this conversation, which is about mobility, Think about the risk of riding a bicycle and putting oneself into a position in which there are no barriers for protection, but one many ways wants to simply experience freedom. The ability to move in through an out urbanized space without being stopped, without being harassed, 
without being queried and without being questioned. In other words, until we move into a place in which regardless of my phenotypic expression, whether you like my phenotypic expression or not is irrelevant, but I should be able to simply move through space and not be bothered and not be engaged. And if there is a stop that occurs in my neighborhood, I would have the expectation as a citizen of the United States that other citizens of the United States or members of that community, whether one is undocumented or not, that the police are going to treat that young man with some level of dignity. And yet here's a citizen who's clearly can observe that this young man was not treated with basic dignity. And let me say again, this is not an anomaly. This is not a one-off. This doesn't just happen occasionally. And the fact that as we begin this conversation that happened this evening to a participant on this program, I, I, I would be, um, it would be, um, how can we not speak to what is most present for Black folks in the Southern California region, in California, and in the United States writ large, because that is a dominant lived experience. And at some point, if you, as that multiple generational frustration has built over multiple generations, the lack of violence of the Black Lives Matter response to it, to me speaks to, uh, I, I'm sorry, but the what about is in comparison between uh, the, the burning of the cities during the summer, the selective choices of components of particular protests and escalating those and using those as if somehow that the overreaching, nonviolent, systemic protest that has happened in Black Lives Matter, which is simply asking for human beings to have the ability to be human beings in the United States of America, then I need you to simply, I'm going to lessen my voice, bring my narrative down, and I want to turn back and we need to listen to the voice of Lena because that voice is the voice that you need to hear. Mm -hmm. And she is talking about other members of her community who also experienced that in that same space meaning watching a situation that they all could resonate with because each one of them would have a story. If you believe that somehow, well, those things can be mitigated if by class and by um, economics, and if you dress a certain way, I would ask you to go to your most moderate person, the former president of the United States, Barack Hussein Obama, and if you actually had listened to his story, you would have heard the story that there were situations for him while he was an elected senator to the United States of America uh -huh. in which he received discriminatory practice and treatment. Huh. So the, the counter narrative, which will be, then you need to adopt yourself to middle 
Western standards of dress and physical expression and somehow that that will serve as a protective tissue against the police or that if you comply when you are given instructions by the police that these are vehicles that will serve as protective shields and vehicles. I will again say again, then listen to what Nina told you because all those things were done. And she just shared two stories. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to put Nina on the spot, but her willingness to share those stories to me speaks to, again, a larger narrative. And it's that larger narrative until we begin to hear it, until we begin to listen, until we begin to slow down, until we begin to understand it's connected into a larger context, and that that larger context has profound implications for holding together the nation state, we are going to, in the long term, put ourselves into a position in which you are going to consistently see acts of resistance, acts of performative resistance, and a unwillingness particularly of young folks and particularly of young black folks to participate in systems in which they can see as they project into their future. Tell me why I'm going to persist and exist in a system in which I can clearly see that I can go to your best institutions. I can dress just like you do. I can put on the same clothes you do. I can talk the same way you do and I will still get arrested and pulled over and harassed. I would like to move through this system and this society and be treated with a basic level of dignity and respect, which is if I don't want to be stopped when I'm picking up groceries, I would like to not be stopped while I'm picking up groceries. I think that's the minimal thing that a person who is in the United States of America should be expecting. And I need you to hear that, that didn't happen here. Right, right. And I'm not right. mansplaining, Lena, and I'm sorry if it feels like I'm going into mansplaining or anything like that. It's, it is, but I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to just move on and, and do shtick and do that stuff because I don't think that, um, that, that, I don't think that honors your story. I don't think that honors your courage. I don't think that honors what you shared. And I think that there, we have to, in these moments, stop, slow down, and listen. So thank you. And I apologize if it feels any other way. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Totally, totally fine. Um, I've shared other stories uh, here mm-hmm. uh, as well. I've been stopped mm-hmm. on my bike uh, on the way to a doctor's appointment. So um, it's just, you know, I feel like uh, something that is constantly happening here uh, in South LA, particularly, um, we've seen an increased, uh, well, I particularly have seen an increased number of stops uh, in, in my community. Uh, for black and brown people, um, having conversations with people that I am, you know, teaching these bicycle education classes to, you know, promoting safety, you know, giving them the tools, you know, to do all the right things, you know, if you will. Um, but we know that even doing the right things won't save you. We know that, you know, no matter what it is that we do, as you said, no matter how we, you know, perform, how we dress up, um, we can still be, and we still will be harassed uh, because of, you know, who we are. So, you know, definitely. I think also, you know, what stands out to me too, and and thank you, Lena, again, for sharing that and Chris um, for stopping and and slowing down and focusing on actually what is the most important thing to focus on, which are uh, Black lives and the experience that, in this case, Lena has shared. I mean, it's pretty obvious that 
when we talk about community-based work, which, you know, Lena and I are very much uh, involved with community-based organizations that are uh, attempting to have these conversations um, around mobility justice and some more radical than others, you know, that really is a concern with me in terms of how we really do have to get brave enough and to get uh, enough courage to stand up because it, it might be unfamiliar, but we've seen from generation to generation or, or Lena's heard the stories even at her younger age of, of what her family has had to go through. And so I think organizations like uh, the Labor Community Strategy Center is one um, that is over and on Martin Luther King and Crenshaw that um, has really kind of been an example, I believe here in LA of what revolutionary work looks like. Um, they are also tapping into where um, the, you know, the, the money aspect of it in terms of where to put the money. And so they have one uh, along with the collective of other community-based organizations, a budget that is being taken out of the LA, the Los Angeles uh, School Police Department and that money is actually going into uh, the schools to fund Black lives. Um, now, however, we have a new um, request that's being pushed by uh, Metro that they want to uh, increase their budget to $111 million for more policing uh, with LA Metro. And so now uh, basically we have community organizations coming together to combat that because that is more policing that will in fact police black and brown lives in terms of our movement. So when we look at the, the beginning of policing, which were patrol, or are they called patrol officers that basically uh, hunted down slaves you know, black lives, we're still in that. It's just another name, another title with more money behind it. And they had, we had to have uh, from, from what the documentary shared and other docu uh, documents that there, a, a black person have to have a pass to get from one plantation to another plantation. So our mobility has always been strapped in. Um, and I just wanted to read this um, excerpt from Charles Blow, uh, book called The Devil You Know, A Black uh, Power Manifesto. He just talks about the infrastructure setup. And it really blew my mind that the way that he's not in this transportation or mobility conversation, however, it all ties together at the intersection, which is the oppression uh, of black lives and also our mobility. So he states, city living, particularly North and Western cities, that uh, were created basically when black people move north, they can find us in a particular neighborhoods where we had to live. And that if you try to move out of those neighborhoods that that would often end in violence. He goes on to say that the city state and federal governments used infrastructure actually and how they built the roads to war to wall and us it basically within like a refugee camp, if you will, to prevent us from walking from one neighborhood into another neighborhood. And they would also build, and that they also built giant freeways between your neighborhood and the neighborhood next to you. And they would use things like this, such as racial covenants and redlining to prevent us from ever being able 
to buy outside of those boundaries that they caged us. And they continue to cage many black and brown communities within. So it really makes me think also in terms of the conversations that we have in our mobility uh, justice circles and how we move forward from here. Tim, you know, Tim Watkins, who's the head of the Watts Labor Community Action Coalition. Yes, yes, Ted I know Watkins, Tim. Who starts it in 66. Um, I had the honor of doing some work for them and he took me out on 103rd and Central um, in front of the WSCSC and he goes, I'm gonna, we're gonna stand here for a second and I'm gonna show you what I mean. He goes, look above, you're on the glide pattern for one of the most busy international airports on the planet. There are 360 degrees by which there are possible that you could bring planes into Los Angeles International Airport but the community of Inglewood, Watts, and Brook is the glide pattern for that. He goes, I'm not even done yet. The hub that says the 103rd and Central was the hub for transcontinental railway transportation, the red car, and also local railway transportation. The 105 freeway, which emerges after the Watson selection of 1965. He goes, so as you're looking at this particular community in Watts, what you're looking at is a community that is literally bisected, contained and controlled as a transportation hub for the city. If you've ever been on the 105 freeway and you're heading in a eastward trajectory after about 2.30 or 3 in the afternoon, you're driving over used to be Imperial Highway, which would drop you past the largest and densest concentration of public housing west of the Mississippi. Hmm. And the reason why you can drive over it is because after the Watson insurrection, there was a desire to make sure that you didn't have to drive through those communities. Hmm. So that major east-west thoroughfare, which is the 105 freeway, think about all that if that was street level traffic going through that community. Think about the possibilities of entrepreneurship, capital engagement, people simply pulling over to get either gas or eaten otherwise. Think about what that would do as a spiral into that community, but you drive past it. You wouldn't even know you were driving past public housing because the 105 is intended for you to never look down. Mm -hmm. You can look down as you're flying into LA National Airport, but you don't have to actually grapple with it. And you don't have to, if you're on a railway transportation and the goods and services are coming out of San Pedro on Long Beach, you don't have to deal with it in that way as well. So again, the, the structure of the way and, and kick me if I don't bring that up as well, that the disproportionate impact of waste and other materials that are produced in urban environments are disproportionately in South mm -hmm. Central as well as along toxic, which means yeah. those toxic waste dumps are also sitting in a location. And so biking and mobility and the ability to move and walk through those communities is impacted by thoroughfares that are moving people, goods, and services throughout the urban community. Yeah. The, the, the simplest way to take a look at it is if you're heading on the 10 freeway, 
right around La Cienega Boulevard, which my parents' house is, it goes to the left. Now, if the 10 freeway actually went where it was supposed to go, it would have gone through Brentwood and Bel Air, right. but it doesn't. Right. It makes a little bit of a left and it goes through what was a traditionally black and brown and Japanese community before it hits the freeway. And that community was taken down by the freeway. If you go into the hub, which is the five, the 10 and the 101 freeway, just east of downtown into the community that was Borough Heights, again, another multiracial, multi-ethnic, interdenominational neighborhood that was destroyed by the intersection and the creation of a freeway network. So not only does the freeway network, which is at this point in Southern California, largely non-functional because it used to be back in the day, at least if you, you know, rush hour used to be, there was a 10 in the morning to about two in the afternoon window that you know you could basically miss it. There ain't no more 10 in the morning or two o'clock window. There is just, they're non-functional and they're non-functional and they're still riding over ghost neighborhoods of formerly black and brown communities. If you're in, mm. if you're, if you're at Arlington, if you look up to your left, if you're headed east, uh, westbound, you can look up and go two houses and see the, the house of Hattie McDaniel, the former actress who won the Academy Award for Gone with the Wind in 1939, because that That's was West Adams. an elite black neighborhood. It's the West Adams mm-hmm. community. There's a great piece on KCET that connects yeah. to that as well. <laughs> So again, so it's and it's and until both the historical contextual stories are told, but more importantly at this point, I mean, so what as an historian, my role is to help to do historical contextual big meta pieces. But that is only in service of the Lena Williams story, which is you've got to start listening to what's happening on the streets today and right now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm happy to do the shtick and do the big meta stories and all the rest of that stuff, but shtick and meta stories doesn't speak to that lived experience on the ground because it's not some past historical moment that happened 50 years ago. It's 15 minutes ago. Correct. I need you to hear that. This isn't the story from 15 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. This is, this was my moment 15 minutes ago. Wow. And I could yeah. replicate the story that she shared from a year ago to five years ago to 15 years ago. My father tells the story 1964. He was going out with my mom and Betty, Barry Greer and his wife. They were coming on Norton Avenue, 64. And there was a young brother who was being held about a TD on the corner. It's 1964. So I want you to think contextually about the connective tissue between the story she shared from 15 minutes ago and my parents' story from 1964, which means it's still a young man and it's still a black and white unit, LAPD. And it's still a situation which the community has to be concerned about what's happening. Think about the connective tissue between those moments that are 56 plus years removed from each other. And there's no fundamental differences between the two. No, no. Slow down and listen to that for a second. 
Yeah. And I know this, this, I knew this was going to happen, that our conversation definitely, we have so much to talk about. Um, we're actually at our hour, um, but we're going to, we're going to go over a little um, just so that we can have our, our final remarks and also to be able to, to, to keep it open and say, we've definitely have to come together again. Uh, I would like Lena to uh, again, share her, her thoughts and, and not that this is the end, um, and then I'll share final thoughts and you guys will be able to share your contact information or any other information for those that are listening. I do know we do have a lot of folks that are listening tonight. So uh, Lena, any thoughts at this point in wrapping up? Um, <clears throat> I say to the, you know, to the black folks, you know, to our community, the folks who are still, you know, out, continue to push, you know, past the fear uh, in the ways that you can to seek the freedom that you desire. Um, I say to, you know, the other folks who are listening, um, you know, if you have a moment to talk to your family, you know, about how these issues are impacting us and the solutions that might be, you know, uh, on the table or that you could put on the table, uh, because I think it's definitely the work of, you know, other folks, not Black folks, to do the work of solving these issues. So I think if you can sit with your, you know, folks, sit with some people and come up with solutions and just have those necessary conversations, uh, it might start, you know, some of the, you know, the work that needs to be done. I know that's not the, the simple solution. I know that it, it isn't a simple solution, uh, but I do think that, you know, starting those conversations with your family um, and with your families and friends and networks, you know, about what can happen, what you can do personally, um, you know, to add some effectiveness to this change would be Thank you. Really Thank wonderful. you. Thank you. And uh, Chris, any final remarks that you would like to share as we wrap up I, this evening? I think particularly for the longstanding, first of all, um, I appreciate Nick and Don's willingness to reach out and to offer um, their space and their community and to broaden the conversation because I think that that's the direction we've got to go in. The second piece is that um, I would humbly offer that for that community is um, that, you know, this is the moment to begin the listening and to really start to um, engage and to, and to spend the time and to recognize um, that these stories are real, that these stories are valid, that these stories resonate, that these stories have historical context, and that these stories impact the way that communities of color, GLBTQ folks um, experience the ability to have mobility and, and that they need to be heard and they need to be listened to and not just simply listened to and then policy shifts need to happen accordingly. Thank you so much. And um, I'm really just moved uh, this evening that again, yeah, Nick and Don have made this possible uh, for us to share this platform. I think we are an example of uh, what more of us should be doing um, in terms of finding ways to work together uh, for those that uh, need to have narrative shared and for those of us that need to listen um, to those narratives shared uh, in order to figure out how we are going to transition into uh, a new era of, of human existence. I, I, for me, I just want to say the name uh, Dijon Kenzie uh, that was murdered uh, 
back at the early summer while riding on his bike in, in South Los Angeles. Um, no, he had no gun, he had no ammunition, um, whatever the violation was, it, uh, it did not warrant that he be killed and shot 20 times um, with his back turned. He knew that evening something wrong was gonna happen based on what he's probably had to experience his entire 20 something years of life. And so for those of you that are listening, um, that are bicyclists, bicyclist advocates, um, claim to be in mobility justice. This is also a narrative that's shared that we're not having at um, the way we should be having at our conferences and summits when we talk about getting black lives or black indigenous people of color on bikes. Um, as far as I'm concerned, we don't need to be on bikes until America changes the way that it sees us and treats us in open spaces. And so also when those advocates get upset that we don't have or nor want bike lanes, it's because of our historic experience and outdoor uh, spaces that it's safer for us to be enclosed in a car. And even a car isn't safe um, based on the historic um, story of the Green Book. So really at the end of the day, where are we safe in America is the question. And until we can um, develop policies as the Green Book did in its own way, as Harriet Tutman and, and those that worked with her with the Underground Railroad to move us along movement, you know, in, in almost a secrecy or this kind of protective way of moving around and having each other's back. This is how movement is in our DNA in terms of how we have to watch out for ourselves and for our kids as a mom and as all mothers know that we have to tell our black children, not just our black boys anymore, but our black boys and girls to be careful when they go outside the doors because they're gonna get pulled, if they are going to get pulled over. And so kind of how to conduct themselves. And even young people are getting tired of that, how to conduct, why are you pulling me over? You know, it, there's no need for you to even be pulling me over. So again, whether it's on a bike or in a car. So I don't know also what kind of folks were expecting to hear when we talked about the Green Book today, but we didn't, we're not talking about the movie tonight. We're talking about the real deal in terms of black lives, the safety of black lives and mobility. And what does this have to do with bicycling? I would just say that it has to do with the safety of black lives moving. And so really our movement stems from the standpoint of how a green book actually created a safety plan. And so the green book connects at that intersection that we're trying to look for ways and justice ways that we can talk about bicycling safely and to be in spaces where we are not harassed, where we are not shot 20 times in our back, where we are not pulled over for a violation that makes no sense where we can ride a bike and go to the doctor, as Lena said and shared from her experience and not get pulled over because she's a black life riding on a bike. So these are the covered less heard narratives and really in our bicycling circles, at our bicycling meetings, at our neighborhood council,
gatherings. And this is the real deal. So thank you so much for just um, being here with us tonight. Um, Christopher, Dr. Christopher West, Elena uh, uh, Williams, our co-host, and our wonderful um, hosts, Bike Talk, that have uh, provided this platform for us to have this conversation. Thank you, Ilana. Um, thanks for, for having me watch the documentary and uh, for coming on every, every week this month. Yes, we, we're making and, it happen, yes. And thank mm. you, Chris. Appreciate you, thank you. Okay. Lena. Thank you, Lena. Thank you, and we'll Sorry, be talking soon. And Chris, we will definitely be reaching out to you. And thank you for your time. Thank you, folks. Thanks, okay. everybody. Do, do we get everybody's uh, social media? We always try to get everybody's yeah, contact and okay. where you can be uh, reached after the show. Um, hey, Chris, Chris, do you want to share yours? What am I? Uh, what am I? What part am I sharing, folks? Um, just any of your social media contacts, if you have any, or uh, if you have any contact for folks out there to get in touch with you that that may want to oh, sure. follow you or yeah. speak out or say so. Oh, um, yeah, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so Christopher West. So that's my shtick. Okay. <laughs> Christopher West, Pasadena City College, or through Pasadena City College, um, I serve as the um, the uh, diversity initiative coordinator, whatever the stick is. Um, I would say, like, if I if I can plug something, it would be um, reckoning and racism, which is the Glendale Public Library's ongoing piece, um, is extraordinary, really well done, um, and if you're looking to explore into very specific details the city of glendale's work to try to both acknowledge its past as a sundown town and then dig deeply mm -hmm. into the details um that public exhibit uh it's called reckoning and race is is extraordinary it's up and it's um they're on uh, issue three of it and there'll be six more of it but it's really well done oh wonderful yeah. i'll look that up Please. and share it on um facebook as well lena awesome uh, if you want to find out more about the work I'm doing with People for Mobility Justice, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at People for Mobility Justice. Okay, thank you. And uh, everyone, most folks have my information. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, also, I've just created a uh, We the People Black Lives Rolling page on Facebook. So between that and Ride and Living Color, uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And um, yeah, reach out to Don and uh, Rick, Nick, if you have any other questions and you can't reach us. Awesome. Thank you. Everyone yeah. have a good evening. Thank you, you too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Thank guys. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. you Great conversation. Okay. Bye-bye. That was an intense uh, conversation. That was, you know kind of mind-blowing really I don't know what to say I mean I mean I, I'm remembering the first time I really realized that black folks are treated differently by the cops was probably 25 years ago or so I was heading up snowboarding with two friends who both were black and we stopped in fucking Colton and uh, my friend was driving, he's black. And we stopped in at a 7-Eleven 
just to go get something to drink, you know, on the way home to get a like soda or something like that. We weren't drinking alcohol and the cops waited for us to leave the parking lot of 7-Eleven and they pulled us over immediately. And it was just like, why did this happen? And they searched the entire car and it was just like, I it like little light bulb in my head. I was like, okay, this happened because there's someone black that's driving and, you know, it, it just, it's crazy how uncanny it is that this happens. And like, you know, to hear Chris talk about his parents going through this in the sixties, all the way to 15 minutes ago, or, you know, as he said, like for Lena to uh, see that happening decades later, still, uh, it just drives me bananas. It's, it's, you know, I don't know. So anyways, um, yeah, I'm so glad that, 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 that we have Yolanda and her show on. So that was, that was great. I, yeah. I'm looking forward to more. Let's just take it out. Bike okay. talk on KPFK live stream. This is Don Ward and Nick Richard, your co-hosts along with Yolanda T Davis Overstreet. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.